when God leads the way. This is the name of the series that we're living in now for a while, based largely in the book of Exodus. And it's all about the children of Israel being on this journey through the wilderness, through the desert experience, this unique experience that they went through, which has some overtones to the experience I would suggest we're going through during the time of COVID. And we see as we study the book that God presented them with many opportunities, a few of which they exercised, but sadly a number of which they missed out on. And really I think the big question that's hanging in the air is, will we exercise the opportunities God gives to us during this time of COVID, or will we miss them and miss out all that he has for us during this time when God leads the way? Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word now, we invite you to speak into our heart and into our life as only you can. We thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. You know exactly what we need. We thank you that you offer that to us. You offer to shape us, to give us the best life that you have intended for us. The life that that reflects you well. So may we be open to that. May we step into that. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. This man wrote this letter. Let me read it to you. I am 31 years old. And though I am divorced, although I fought the divorce bitterly, now I feel bad because I have no hope for the future. Often I go home from church and cry because there's no one to hold me and no one seems to care. What hurts most is I have begged God for the grace to be single for his glory and to fix my eyes on Jesus, but nothing changes and I continue to fail. I'm a basket case emotionally and on the verge of a collapse. Something is very wrong. I am so crippled and embittered that I can scarcely relate to others anymore. I feel as if I will live out the rest of my life in the penalty box. Have you ever been in the penalty box? Maybe you feel like you're in the penalty box right now as we're going through what we're going through. Maybe there's things that have gone on in your life, some tragedy that took place in your past, maybe a marriage that dissolved, maybe a bad business deal, maybe a job that you loved that they said to you one day, you're no longer welcome here. Maybe you sat across from the doctor And they said, I have some bad news. And something has taken place in your life and you feel like you're sitting out time right now in the penalty box. And sometimes we're in the penalty box because of a failure on our part or a series of failures or a series of sinful choices that has resulted in the consequences that we're experiencing. Sometimes it's none of that. Sometimes it's just 
we've gone through some difficult things in life. But if you feel like you're in the penalty box, you have a friend in Moses. Moses who spent 40 years in the penalty box. You have your Bible or your device. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in just a moment here or two in verse 11 through the end of that chapter. Exodus chapter 2. Last week we talked about how Moses, as an infant, was miraculously saved by God from certain death. His mom and dad had been commanded to throw him into the Nile to have him killed. They refused to do it. They hid him for three months, and then they led, they, they committed him to God, and he ended up miraculously being adopted into the family of Pharaoh in Egypt. And in fact, the daughter of Pharaoh said to his biological mother, would you uh, nurse him and care for him, which would typically last anywhere from two to four years. And then he moved into the home of Pharaoh's daughter. And we're told in the book of Acts, commenting on this in Acts 7 verse 22, that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. This means that he would have gone to the finest universities in the world. He would have gone to their equivalent of their military academy as well. He would have studied things like battle tactics. He would have studied mathematics. He would have studied astronomy. He would have studied chemistry and hieroglyphics. He would have been a very intelligent, well-spoken individual. F.B. Meyer writing about Moses, said that when Moses would go through the streets, the soldiers would run ahead of him, shouting, bow the knee, bow the knee, Moses is coming. Josephus, a Jewish historian, writes about him that when the Ethiopians invaded Egypt, Moses took charge of the army and won the victory. He was well-educated, he was articulate, he was suave, he was sophisticated, he was extremely popular, he would have been on the cover multiple times of Egyptian People magazine, he would have had a platinum visa card with an unlimited credit limit, and yet the Bible tells us, and we're going to discover in this passage, that Moses forsook all of this. He left all of the treasures of Egypt because of something that had been instilled within Moses that told him he did not belong in the palace, but with his own people. I would argue, as we talked about last week, this is because of what his parents instilled in him in those first two to four years of life, the formative years of life. We talked about the incredible responsibility we have as parents or grandparents or an aunt or an uncle to instill the things of God in the lives of little ones, of children. Nothing is more important. Nothing should take priority over that in our life. And we make a grave error when we allow other things that might be good things to take precedence over those things. 
And because of what they instilled in him, because I am guessing the fact that, I'm guessing that they prayed for him every day when he went into Pharaoh's court. And because of this, now as a grown man, as we're going to discover, he goes out of the palace and he sees the rows upon rows of Hebrew slaves that are being treated, it says in chapter 1, ruthlessly, that are being beaten by the Egyptian taskmasters. As he saw them, he knew that he had to try to deliver the people of God, that God had put a call on his life to do it. He had been told by his biological mother how God had miraculously delivered him for such a time as this. Let's begin reading now in verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. We see in this passage the first example the written example, at least, of his besetting sin. The sin that kept coming back over and over again in his life that he never fully addressed. And for many of us, this will be the case. There's a besetting sin in our life. In the nation of Israel, their besetting sin was grumbling. And we are going to discover in this story that they grumbled over and over again. And this led them to the place of having disobedient hearts, and it cost them so much. And I would argue that now as a nation, this is one of our besetting sins, that we have become a grumbling people. For Moses, it was uncontrollable anger. We can discover if we had more time in Scripture that anger is really a neutral emotion given to us by God in order to motivate us to do the right thing. And so he comes across this injustice that's being perpetrated against one of his fellow Hebrews, and he's angry. He was right to be angry. This guy's being mistreated. But he overreacts and he does something he knows is wrong because he glances this way and that to make sure the coast is clear, kills the guy that's abusing the Hebrew and hides his body in the sand. He overreacts. And I'm imagining there was other examples of him overreacting in anger. And later we're going to discover in this series he overreacts massively because of his anger one more time. And it costs him the opportunity to go into the promised land. Is there a besetting sin in our life that we're not dealing with? And what does it cost us? Or what will it cost us? Well, Moses does this. He expected the rejection of Pharaoh. 
In fact, I'm guessing he thought about this. He was a bright guy. I'm sure he contemplated what he had to lose. I'm guessing that for, to some degree at least, he's prepared to lose what he thought he would lose. Although I don't think we ever really anticipate all that we're going to lose in a situation like that. But we're told in Acts chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue him, but they did not. And so he knows that Pharaoh is going to reject him, but never for a moment did he think that his own people, the very people for whom he was prepared to sacrifice everything, Never did he think they would reject him. And so if you're here today and you've ever been rejected by someone you thought you could trust, you have a friend in Moses. If this is your penalty box, that someone betrayed you. Well, it says in verse 15, When Pharaoh heard of this, like the rumor mill is alive and well, and they've spread this, that he killed this guy. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. He runs for his life. He sits down by a well, probably put his head in his hands, and begins to think about his life. Remember, educated in the finest universities of the world at that time, a box full of medals for bravery on the field of battle. In the land of Egypt, he has instant name recognition. He's the most popular bachelor in all of Egypt. If he had ascended to the throne, which we have no idea if he would have or not, He would have become, if he had ascended to the throne, he would have become a small G God that all of the people of Egypt would have bowed down and worshipped. Now he is in the desert and he has nothing. And sometimes I think we have the mentality that there should be a pill that we can take to remove every difficult situation from our life. And that when we're in difficult situations, our primary and really our only goal is simply to make the difficulty going away, go away. Now there's ultimately, there's nothing wrong with the circumstances changing and the difficult thing going away. But this is not the primary thing. God says, don't waste the opportunity that difficult situations present. I have significant things for you, opportunities for you, in the difficult circumstances of life. Are you open to them? Or are you just quickly passing over them in the hopes that this will just all go away? And I think as believers, we have succumbed to this cultural mindset. Life should be easy. Life should be comfortable. There should be a pill I can take to deal with whatever it is I'm dealing with. But what we discover from Moses is that there are some things that we can't learn in the palace. There's some lessons that success will never teach us. 
There's some lessons that are only learned, some opportunities that are only exercised in the penalty box. And when it seems like his life is over, actually the God of the second chance steps into his life. And do we see the God of the second chance in the midst of what we're going through? So there's a couple of things in particular that Moses seems to exercise in the penalty box. What are those things? Maybe we can learn them too. The first one is servanthood. I said in the opening message in this series, which was kind of an overview of the book, I said, I believe there's three primary ways that Satan is attacking the church right now. Let me remind you of one of them and talk about it. One of the ways I believe Satan is attacking the church is through idle hands. That we have increasingly moved from a servant posture during what we're going through to more a selfish posture, focusing on me. Missing out all of the opportunities, the ability to use our spiritual gifts the opportunities that God keeps presenting us with. I read this week somebody that said, in speaking about this, we have become indifferent to our indifferences. We are becoming increasingly indifferent to our indifferences as we focus increasingly on ourselves during this time. What about Moses? What did he do? after he lost everything, beginning in verse 16. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. A tremendous amount of work, by the way. If you've ever drawn water by hand, that's a tremendous amount of work. And where is he? Dad asked the daughters. Why did you leave him? Why didn't you invite him to come and have something to eat? Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zephora to Moses in marriage. I find this very interesting. Here's a guy, as I said earlier, who has instant name recognition in Egypt, most popular bachelor in all of Egypt. He comes across some quote-unquote damsels in distress, and using his military training, he beats them up. Perhaps he even kills some of the people that are hassling these women using Egyptian karate or whatever it is he used. He waters their flock. He takes his servant posture, something he would not have been used to. Everybody else would have been waiting on him when he was in Egypt. And Moses begins to serve in obscurity in a place where he's totally unknown. What are the opportunities God is giving you in the midst of COVID? For Moses... Unlike his time in Egypt, nobody is quoting him as he does this. 
Nobody is telling him how great he is. Nobody gives him a medal for bravery this day. In Egypt, he has instant name recognition. As he goes down the street, just imagine the women holding their kids up going, it's Big Mo, it's the Mo man, be like him. Everybody is cheering him on. He has a huge endorsement deal to wear Nike apparel. Everything he does goes viral. As he, through, as he goes through the streets, they upload videos of him to YouTube and Instagram. He's seen as the number one bachelor, the hero who rescues the women. His PR person is fielding interview opportunities with Vogue and the Cairo Herald. And now it's, I've been through the, the desert on a horse with no name. They don't even know who he is. Dad says to the girls, how come you're back so soon? And they go, some guy, some Egyptian rescued us. They don't even know his name in Midian. And so he serves in obscurity. He's in the penalty box. And I find it interesting that rather than Everything is over rather than just wallowing in his own self-grief. He chooses to serve. How does God want to use me? He serves in humility. Of all the jobs he ends up getting, we see in chapter 3, he becomes a shepherd in Midian for rule. We know from Genesis chapter 46... It says in Genesis 46 that the job of being a shepherd is detestable, it says in Scripture, detestable to the Egyptians. In other words, it's by the Egyptians that he, that's all he really knows. This is considered the lowest of the low vocations. And he is discovering, and he illustrates for us, that life it is often unfair But even in the unfairness of life, we can be fair. And he chooses to serve rather than wallow in self-pity. He chooses to serve in the penalty box. There are no idle hands for Moses. And here's the cool thing. When you're in the penalty box, when you choose to serve, Use the opportunities that God gives you. You're going to find the severity of the penalty box will lessen. Because there is joy that attaches in serving. There's joy that attaches. And so he says to himself, I I was a prince. I'm now a shepherd. And the question that comes off the page for me is during COVID, how will I be a shepherd? In Egypt, with his position and his intellectual abilities, he would have been used to dialoguing and debating with the great intellects of the day about the mysteries of the universe. Now his most interesting conversation is with a sheep. 
And sheep are supposed to be, I don't know this personally, but I've heard they're very dumb animals. I've read this poem to you many years ago. Let me read it to you again. It's by a woman named Ruth Harms Cocken. She writes this. You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how I speak eagerly for you at women's clubs. You know how I effervesce when I promote fellowship groups. You know my genuine enthusiasm at Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. Servanthood. What are the lessons we're learning in the penalty box? It says in verse 22, Zephora gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. He never felt at home in the desert. Didn't fit in the desert. This is how you might be feeling right now. I'm guessing many of you do. His aptitude, his abilities, his giftedness lay in one direction. His responsibilities lay in another. And if you've been trained to do a certain thing, but that which you're now being asked to do lies in a totally different area, and you feel like you're in the penalty box as a result, I say to you again, you have a friend in Moses. And if God calls us to serve in obscurity and in humility, this is our special responsibility before him. And he's with us in the desert. And Moses is discovering, and hopefully I'm discovering and we're discovering, that it's almost less about what we do, but rather it's more about why we do it. What's our heart posture that really matters to God? And servanthood is typically not a lesson we learn in the palace. Maybe sometimes, but not typically. We don't typically learn it when we're being successful. Typically, it's during the times of struggle and dryness that true servanthood grows. Another thing we see this guy doing is the whole issue of trust. Verse 23, four words. During that long time. 14,600 days. 40 years. He's learning the lesson of trust. Because during those 40 years, to the human eye, it seems like God is doing nothing. And after 14,600 days, finally to the human eye, it seems like God is going to do something. Notice the verbs in verses 24 and 25. Notice the verbs. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant 
with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. So he looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God heard their groaning. He wasn't deaf after all. Sometimes we pray and we're wondering, does God really hear me? God does not need a hearing aid. He remembered. He remembered more than 400 years earlier when he had made covenant promises to Abraham, which he renewed with Isaac and he renewed with Jacob. He remembered his covenant. And God looked. He was observing. He's not blind. And when it seems like God is silent and not doing anything, he heard, he remembered, he saw and he acted. In fact, he is always hearing, he is always remembering, he is always seeing. But now he's just doing it in a way that we as human beings with our limited capacity, because we are typically not aware that there is a spiritual world that's going on around us, all around us right now, right in this room. And we're often very unaware of this. But in fact, God has been at work all this time. But now he's just doing it in a way that we as human beings can recognize. He's always at work in the desert. You know, if you read this book from one end to the other, when you read Bible, you are going to discover that everybody that God uses in a significant way goes through some kind of desert experience. They all do. Think of a few of them with me. Jesus for 40 days, Israel for 40 years, Joseph, Daniel, Paul for three days, and then many years in prison. And the reality is, is it's just much easier to trust him, to believe him, when God seems to be overtly doing something and everything seems to be going well. It's much more difficult when there seems to be a stretch of unending desert. Erwin Lutzer says this, Blessed is the man who does not interpret the silence of God as the indifference of God. Blessed is the man who knows that God is at work even when it seems like nothing is happening. Don't believe the lie of Satan where he tries to trick us into wasting the desert experience. And again, we might be in the desert because of our sin or because of our failures, but it might be not because of those reasons, but simply because of difficult things that have come up. Don't waste the desert opportunity to retreat into ourselves, to become self-absorbed, and to miss the opportunities he gives. God is with us in the penalty box to serve and to trust. 